Well, church, often the Bible tells us to feel or to act in sets of ways that at first seem opposite or contradictory to us. Or to say this another way, the Bible, as we probably know from reading it, sometimes tells us to feel or to act in ways that can seem paradoxical. Ways in which, if the Bible wasn't so clear about it, we might be prone to feel only one way to the disregard of the other. And some examples of this include, to begin, for example, the feelings of fear and trust. Because if you read the Bible, the Bible's very clear, especially toward God, we're supposed to fear him and we should trust him, not one or the other. The same is true of feelings of sorrow and joy. Because the Bible's clear here as well that we can and often should feel both sorrow and joy, even sometimes at the same time. The same is true for our parts of our Christian living. For example, how the Bible says that we are supposed to labor for Christ and work for Christ, but then also we're supposed to rest in the finished work of Christ. And as a final example concerning how we're supposed to feel toward the world and toward unbelievers and concerning our passage this morning, God in his word is clear that we're supposed to feel both rejection and love. Meaning, as God's people, we are called to reject the lifestyles of ungodliness and sin in the world, and yet, at the same time, God tells us that we are genuinely to be people of love. To love the same people whose lifestyles we are rejecting. And I mean genuinely love them in our hearts as a feeling. Not just something we say, but something we genuinely feel. And so in all of these ways, and more could be listed, our call, Christians, is to be robust, biblically-minded people who in our lives are trying to figure out how these seemingly contradictory feelings work. And moreover, and importantly, this means that part of Christian maturity, of growing in Christ, is making sure that we aren't lopsided on any one of these things, making us live in certain areas unbalanced and unbiblically. And we start off our message like that this morning because I think we need to focus on this because so often our logic, coupled then with specific Bible verses, is what can lead us to be lopsided. Like if we were to cite a Bible verse about trusting in God and then say that we should never have feelings of fear, when again, if you read your Bible, it's clear that we should trust and fear the Lord. Or if we were to say that we should never feel sorrowful because the Bible says in Philippians that we should rejoice in the Lord always. Or if we were to cite verses about how we labor for Christ but never emphasize that we also rest in the finished work of Christ. Or finally, concerning this morning, if we were to so emphasize Bible passages about right and wrong but then never really feel love for others. And so again, much of Christian maturity, biblical maturity, and this is something we can all work on. (laughs) Whether you've been a Christian, a new Christian, or you've been a Christian for 50 years, much of biblical maturity is to not just allow our logic and exclusive use of some biblical texts to make us be lopsided and ignore other biblical texts. 
Instead, as God's people, we must, for example, say we fear and we trust the Lord. That we can be sorrowful and at the same time we can rejoice. That we labor for Christ and rest in Christ. And finally, that we should reject sin in people and really love people. Which finally brings us to our passage here this morning. So I say all that because part of what we're going to see from the Apostle Paul here this morning as he talks about unbelievers is exactly what we've been talking about. So he's transitioning here in chapter 3 from talking about the gospel. And then two weeks ago we talked about our pressing on as a result of the gospel. To now he's ending chapter 3 by talking about how we as Christians should live in the world. And specifically, as you can see in the topic sentence in our paragraph there in verse 17, he's talking about how we should walk according to the good examples, like Paul himself, that we have before us. But but see this for yourself. So let's start, look down at your Bibles, verse 17. Let's read that topic sentence together, or follow along as I read it. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So we're to imitate and keep our eyes on, meaning focus on those who are like Paul. And as Paul says elsewhere, he strives to imitate Jesus. So this is a command to imitate anything we see in Paul or anybody else that looks like Christ. But perhaps even more important than the idea of imitation here in that first verse is that idea of walking, walking. And I say that because I think this is actually the main idea of our paragraph here this morning. And you can see that that this is the case because in the next verse, in verse 18 at the end, Paul's going to show how in contrast to people who walk according to his example, there are many who, quote, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And in terms of what this means, this word walk was a common Greek word back then that literally did mean to walk but also it was another way of basically saying to live. And that's because the idea was life is like a journey, right? And how you walk throughout life is essentially how you live. So that's where we are here in Philippians 3 this morning. We've seen in chapter 3 the gospel two weeks ago pressing on as a result of the gospel, but now, this week, the topic is, but now how do we walk? How do we live in this world? Which brings us to our outline for the morning. So our paragraph is pretty basic in its structure, and its structure is going to be our outline here together. So we've already talked about the topic sentence in verse 17, but then from here, Paul very simply goes on to describe how the world walks and lives, and then how we as Christians walk and live. And that in basic will be our outline this morning too. We'll split up our time into two major sections. First, we'll look at how the world walks and how we should feel about it. And then second, we'll transition to us and how we walk and what defines us as Christians. So that's our outline. Very basic. The world first, then us. But before we do start our first point, even here at the outset... Church, I again just briefly want to remind us that we're going to see here what we've already been talking a little bit about this morning. Because as we'll see, here Paul isn't just going to be talking about the world compared to Christians, although he is going to do that. But instead, what's important for us to see is that he's going to do this in a way 
where he weaves together truth and compassion. Or as we said earlier, the Bible is about to show us that we should firmly reject certain things in the world, godlessness of the world, while also having an astonishing love for the world. And I say all that as we start because I think that this in itself, for some of us, may very well be the biggest takeaway from this whole morning. And I mean that because this is a text and a message about the world and Christians. But as we say that, I encourage you to examine your heart. As I was examining my heart while preparing this, and ask yourself, even at the beginning of a message like this, ask yourself, how do I really feel about those who just live like the world? Meaning, how do I feel, like really feel, when the Bible says, it's about to say in verse 19, that many people live as their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and they have minds set on earthly things. Because let's be honest, church, if our social media feeds or some of the news sites that we like to visit or any indication of how some Bible-believing Christians feel, if we're honest, when we think about the world and we think about how the world walks and acts, if we're honest, I think the main feeling a lot of us might feel is more of a disgust. We might say, of course I love them. But if we're honest, we might admit we don't really feel a lot of genuine love for them in our hearts. So, so again, I point that out at the outset because if you're here and you're recognizing right now that that's you, first, admit to yourself that that does go on in your heart or that's going on in your heart. But then, of course, please know our God is very gracious. <laughs> And so I encourage you, even right now, at the beginning of a message like this, confess to the Lord that that goes on often in your heart, and even pray to him as we're about to go through his word that he gives you more of a genuine love for people who do not know Jesus and therefore live like this. Again, ask him to just give you a love, a love like Jesus had for the tax collectors and sinners, a love like Paul had as we're about to see in our text here this morning. Now, to be clear, before we start saying that we should genuinely love them does not mean that the Bible here is now going to ask us to downplay any of the serious things in the world that we should reject. So I want to be clear about that because as we're about to say, we should often reject certain things in the world. But again, the, the point that the Bible is making for us this morning is that even while we do that, brothers and sisters, we must also seek to have a genuine love not just in word, but in our very hearts. With all that said, let's now begin our first section this morning, church, looking at how the world walks and how we should feel about it. And for this, we're going to be in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3, 18 and 19, but we'll begin just by looking at verse 18. So let's look down and read that now. Verse 18. For many, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So as you can see, Paul says that there are many who walk like this, showing that numerically this is a lot of people. And then the main description he soberly gives of them is that they, quote, walk or live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And the idea here, obviously, of enemies carries with it an idea of hostility, of fighting against the cross, against the gospel. 
But importantly, this does not necessarily mean that they're conscious of this fight or not. And I point that out because that's not necessarily Paul's point. He doesn't say that they're all consciously living as enemies of the cross. Instead, what he's about to do is point out in the next verse that by how they live, they're opposed to the cross. They're against the gospel. They walk as enemies of the cross, whether they're conscious of it or not. And I bring up this idea of conscious or unconsciously being enemies because I think it's important for us to understand as Christians how the Bible talks about this sort of stuff. And and this is true of the topic of false teachers as well. Because so often we Christians, especially in the modern age, want to say that someone isn't a false teacher or someone isn't an enemy of the cross all because we think that they mean well or because we've heard from them and it doesn't seem like they're explicitly hostile to the cross or they don't intentionally mean to teach falsely. And so in all those ways, we as modern people put a lot of stock in the conscious intention of people. But the Bible is clear. If someone is living against the gospel, or if someone is teaching something other than the true gospel, even if they mean well, how they're living and how they're teaching is still false. And it's deadly. They may be totally unaware of their enemy-like living, their enemy-like teaching, But if it's opposed to the gospel, it is serious. And that's why we as Christians should care less about how sincere or not someone is, although that might matter to a degree. Instead, what we care about ultimately is God and truth and the gospel. And so that's what Paul means when he says that people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And notice They're enemies and opposed specifically to the cross, meaning in our sinful nature, we and the world don't like the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And so Paul's point in this verse is that the world walks opposed to the gospel against the cross by how they live. And again, some of them may be consciously opposed, while others may not ever think about God or Jesus. But the point is the same. They walk, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so people walk as enemies of the cross, but now the question is, but if they're enemies, what does this look like? What does it look like as they walk, as they live? And that's what Paul expands on in verse 19. So look down at your Bibles and read that now, verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So here we get a description of what being an enemy of the cross of Christ looks like. And as you can see, there's four things listed here. And we will go quickly through them one by one. But again, as we do so, I encourage each one of us to not let these descriptions stir any disgust in our hearts. Instead, as we hear these descriptions quickly, let's, let's let them stir us to compassion, to love, as we're going to talk about in a second. So what does it mean to walk as an enemy of the cross of Christ? We'll look at verse 19 first. It means that their end is destruction. So this is where their walk is leading them. This is where it's ending up to destruction, to punishment, to real final judgment. And second, Paul says their God is their belly. 
And this was a saying for the ancient Greeks because for them, the belly was synonymous for where they felt their appetites. And for clarity on this, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 16, verse 18, that unbelievers, quote, do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And literally, that verse in Romans reads, they serve their own bellies. That's the same word here in Philippians 3.19, that their God is their belly. Because the point is, what has authority over those who do not know Jesus in their lives? What do they serve, even worship, if you want to use that language, basically as their God, whether they know it or not? What directs them day in and out? Well, it's their appetites. And this makes sense, because let's be very honest. Apart from Christ, we would all be like this. In our sinful nature, we simply do and follow and serve whatever we want. Whatever we have the appetite for, whether it's money or power or sex or fame or stability or comfort or just a decent American family or whatever it is, that's what we will naturally serve as our God, and that's it. And so for unbelievers, their God is their belly. They just understandably live for whatever they want, desires and appetites. And third, Paul says, and they glory in their shame. And this means they not only do shameful things, but they're often okay with it and even rejoice in them. And then fourth and finally, Paul says, with minds set on earthly things. And the contrast here is supposed to be with those of us who do know Jesus, who are said elsewhere that we're supposed to put our minds on things above, and as verse 20 says, who are citizens of heaven. In contrast to us, those who do not know Christ only set their minds on things of this earth. And so that's what it means to walk as an enemy of Christ for those who do not know Jesus. And we see this church around us every single day. People are just set on whatever's happening here on this earth. They glory in the things they do, sometimes even shameful things. They serve and chase after just whatever they want. And their end is destruction. So that's how the world walks. But now to finish our first section, our final question on this section, and really our big application for us is, but how should we feel about them? And for this, the answer from our text is twofold. Two feelings, and both feelings really matter. And as for the first answer to how we should feel, it's implied by how Paul wrote those verses. And it's that, as we already said this morning, that we must really reject this way of living and see it as wrong and hurtful. And I mean really reject it. And we see this in our text by how firmly Paul writes everything he says in verses 18 and 19 because he's clear. They are walking as enemies of the cross of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's clear their end is destruction. He's clear this is idolatry as their God is their belly. He's clear it's hurtful and shameful to act like this. And so we must feel this rejection as well that this way of living isn't a neutral choice or lifestyle. Not at all. It's, it's living foreign to the way that God made us, and so it's wrong and it's hurtful to them and to others. And so that is the first way we must feel this morning with a seriousness and without compromise, rejecting that living like that is a good way to live, to walk in this world. But then, along with this, and this is what we've been saying a lot so far this morning, 
what we should also feel is this amazing spirit-enabled love for those who are living like this. And for this, let's read one more time verse 18 because I really want you to see and feel this for yourself. So look down at your Bibles. Verse 18 again. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I mean, that, that's pretty amazing that that's in our Bibles. <laughs> because because try reading that verse without that phrase and now tell you even with tears. It'd read like this. For many of whom I've often told you walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And of course, that wouldn't be wrong for Paul to write it like that. But if that's all that verse 18 said, we'd read that about them being enemies of the cross and wouldn't we all be so tempted to feel this battle-like ferocity and disgust toward the enemy? And again, if we're honest, I think that some of us often do feel that sort of feeling, as we can see from so many Christian social media feeds. But in God's providence, he moved the Apostle Paul to feel and to write that phrase in verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And the point then for us is, again, that this is the second way that we need to feel about those who walk like this and don't know Jesus. Yes, we reject their lifestyle, but also along with that, we strive to feel a genuine, compassionate love for them, even with tears. And on this, commentators are most prone to say that Paul feels these tears because of the first thing he lists in verse 19, that their end is destruction. Meaning Paul saying, is saying that he sometimes weeps and cries when he thinks about unbelievers because they're headed to hell. And of course that's true and so we should feel that too because that is awful. And it's a quick application for all of us and I hope we all hear this. This applies to me as well. A quick application for all of us. We should lovingly allow this reality that the world as a whole is heading to hell to silence any disgust that we're prone to feel towards others who aren't acting the way we like. That should really silence that. And so it's true, their end is destruction should lead us to tears. But it's also true that I think Paul has tears because everything else he says in verse 19 as well. In other words, yes, their destruction that's coming should enlarge our hearts for them, but also we should feel genuine love towards them because instead of knowing and serving God, they're just serving their own bellies. Because instead of rejoicing and glorying in Jesus, they're glorying in lowly, shameful things. And because they only know of this earthly life. In other words, we should feel a genuine love for them, not only because of where they're headed, but because right now they're not living in accordance with how God made them to live. And with that comes a certain level of confusion and loneliness and darkness and anxiety and a chasing after the next thrill that we as Christians don't need to live for because we know Jesus. So church, that's verses 18 and 19. And as for us, an application of course on this is to make sure we aren't living like that. That's of course true. 
And on this, if there is anyone sitting in here this morning who, who's realizing that they don't really know Jesus, who's looking at verses 18 and 19, and you're seeing that that is how you live, and you recognize that you're not satisfied, that you were made for more, which you were, if that is the case, then we are so glad that God brought you to this church here this morning. But even right now, I do encourage you, trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as your God. But for us, church, yes, one application is to make sure we avoid living like this. But again, the bigger application is for us to really strive to feel what the Bible shows us here. To seriously reject how the world lives, but also to genuinely love those who don't know Jesus and who are understandably living like this. And again, one last time, the goal is to love them. Not just in word, because all Christians will say that we love the world but to really feel it. Love in our hearts, sometimes with tears, especially in how we pray for them. That leads us now to our second section, though. So we just saw how the world walks and how we should feel about it, but now we'll see how we as Christians walk and what defines us. And for this, we'll be in verses 20 and 21. We'll read those both right now. So look down at your Bibles, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So again, here's Paul, here Paul is contrasting the world to us as Christians. And remember, the point of the paragraph is comparing how they walk and live to how we walk and live. But what's really interesting here, and you can see this for yourself, is that as Paul makes this comparison to how we now walk in verses 20 and 21, as you can see, he doesn't contrast us with them by talking about how much better we are than them. <laughs> Nor does he contrast with us with them by talking about anything that we really do at all. Instead, how are we contrasted with the world? Well, see it for yourself. It's fascinating. Verses 18 and 19. The world is like this. But then verses 20 and 21. In contrast, we are people who, one, are not citizens here, and two, who wait. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. And that's fascinating because this means in Paul's mind here, and therefore, in God's mind through Paul, what makes us really unique from the world in how we walk and live isn't primarily our morality or our influence or anything really like that. Instead, you can see it. One, we're not citizens here, citizens of heaven. And two, we wait. And this means that we can summarize what sets us apart here by saying that we are people who don't belong here yet. And this is really applicable for us because this means that the flow of the paragraph here at the end of Philippians 3, it means that we're not to see people in the world acting like this in verses 18 and 19 and therefore make it our primary ambition to go and win the world back for Jesus. That's just not what the Bible says. Nor are we to be people who see the evil verses 18 and 19 and mainly try to fight the evil by being really, really good ourselves. That's also not what the Bible says. 
Now it is very true, we are to share the gospel and we are to live world, uh, lives of holiness for the glory of Jesus, but the emphasis of the Bible here and elsewhere is that what sets us apart in contrast to the world is that ultimately we are citizens of heaven and we are waiting. That the world is living like this in verses 18 and 19 and they may be living like that, but we don't belong here yet. And you can see this contrast for yourself in how Paul writes these verses. Verse 19, those in the world set their minds on earthly things. Well, in verse 20, we're citizens of heaven. Verse 19, they follow their bodily appetites, bellies now, while we're waiting, verse 21, for Jesus to come back and transform our bodies. Verse 19, they glory in their shame. In verse 20 and 21, it's implied that we glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the main contrast that Paul is making. The world acts like this. And again, it makes sense. Why would they act differently? They don't know Jesus. But in contrast, we as Christians are citizens of heaven and we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Or again, we are those who do not belong here yet. But, as you probably noticed, I keep saying that we don't belong here yet. Because the truth is, if we stopped and only said that we're those who don't belong here, as we often do, if we only said that, we'd miss what I think is the most substantial and climactic point of God's word here. It's a beautiful point as well. And this is because the climactic ending and point of chapter 3 here in our passage is that yes, those who are in the world act like this in verses 18 and 19. And yes, in contrast to them, we are citizens of heaven and we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And so we do not belong here. But, as verses 20 and 21 tell us, there will be a day when Jesus returns here. And he will transform us and subject all things to himself and then we will belong here. <laughs> That's Paul's point that he's making. He's coming here. That's what we're waiting for. <laughs> we will belong here because this universe, people, Nature, animals, all things will finally be subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will belong here because our sinful bodies will finally be transformed. In some, we will finally belong here because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be here. As a side note on this, most people explaining this passage, if you were to study it, will point out that Paul's probably really intentional that he decided to call Jesus a savior in verse 20. And that's because, I don't know if you knew this, but the Roman emperors back then also liked to call themselves savior or the word soter in Greek. And so Paul's point in this paragraph is that the world is living like this in verse 18, verses 18 and 19. And specifically, those in the Roman Empire, which he was living in, are living this way and they're following their soter, their emperor. And so that's the world. But his point is that in contrast, those who were Christians in the Roman Empire were waiting for their soter to come back. And this means for Paul, the early Christians, 
weren't called to try to conquer Rome. The early Christians weren't called to try to make sure that a Roman soter happened to be a Christians and try to take over the empire politically or anything like that. Instead, Paul's point was that Christians back then and we as Christians now are those who are waiting for our soter, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. The day when our Lord and the true soter comes from heaven to here because it's then that our bodies will be transformed. It's then that all things will be subjected to him. And it's then that we will finally live as citizens of heaven here as all was meant to be forever. So church, that's Philippians 3 and how it ends. It's about how the world walks and how we as Christians walk. And the point of the paragraph is that the world walks as enemies of the cross of Christ and as a result, we should reject this type of living while also genuinely loving them. But then for us, in contrast, mainly we wait. We're citizens of heaven who are waiting for heaven to come here, for our soter to return, because then we'll belong here. We'll belong with Jesus here forever and with one another here forever. So that's chapter three. But as you might have noticed in our scripture reading, we're actually going to go through chapter four, verse one this morning. And we do that because chapter four, verse one is probably something that belongs in chapter three here. And I say that because you might, have, you might know that the, the chapter divisions were added over a thousand years after the Bible was written. But I say that because as you'll see, chapter four, verse one is actually Paul's concluding verse on this section. It's his concluding application on this point for the Philippians, if you will. And that being the case, it'll be our concluding application as well. So as we close, let's look down, church, by reading and applying chapter 4, verse 1. So look down at your Bibles. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So first, notice the big buildup to this command. Therefore, meaning in light of everything that's been said, my brothers, meaning we're in the same family in Christ, whom I love and long for, I really love you, my joy and crown, which is a way of saying he rejoices in them and he believes that the Philippians will be part of his reward when Jesus comes back. So that's the big buildup. But then comes the command, the application for them and the application for us. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And that's a great application, not just because it's in God's word, but because after everything that has been said, this is our takeaway, brothers and sisters. Stand firm now, thus, in the Lord. And so to break that down, church, to begin, we are called now, after hearing everything we heard this morning, to stand firm. Or to say it another way, don't move. <laughs> and this connects us back to what we saw in verses in 20 and 21, because remember, most emphatically in our text, what we are called now to do in the midst of the world, acting like this, is simply to wait. And so the call for us now is to not move, to stand firm, to not compromise and give in and start acting like the world as we wait. But then specifically the text says we are to stand firm thus, meaning we are to stand firm in this way. And this word thus then includes everything that we've talked about this morning. Rejecting the godlessness of the world, but really loving the world and waiting for our Savior to come back. That's how we thus stand firm. 
And again, just one last time, this means, church, that we don't stand firm by fretting or being overly zealous about the state of our world or our nation. Because I hope we're now seeing from God's word itself how amazingly non-reactive Paul is about how the world acts in verses 18 and 19. And remember, Paul lived at this time in the Roman Empire, which was considerably more outwardly sinful and godless than our world today in which violence was even more normal, in which sexual promiscuity was even more acceptable, and in which Christians were even more looked down upon and ostracized. And yet, what is Paul's and therefore God's application to us in response to this all, in response to the world acting like this in verses 18 and 19? Yes, it is to reject living like that and to love them, but above all, we wait for our soter. That's it. But then finally, we stand firm thus in the Lord. And this is how we'll conclude. We stand firm in the Lord. And this means we stand firm. We don't move, not ultimately by our own strength and resolve, but because we're connected to, we're in union with, we're in the one we know who's coming back. Our Soter, our Lord and God. He's coming soon. We're connected to, we're in a relationship with him. And so for now, our calling in the midst of this world is to love others and it's to stand firm as we wait for him to return. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.